welcome to Biblically Speaking, a podcast centered on the gospel and driven by the scriptures. Well, welcome to Biblically Speaking. Uh, the point of this podcast is to speak to the growing divide between what is taught in mainstream evangelical circles and what's taught in the canon of scripture. Uh, my name is Charlie. Uh, I am a SBTCS, Southern Baptist Theological student uh, from Chesapeake, Virginia, uh, here working uh, with my, my good friends Christian and Gabe over here. Christian, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, my name's Christian. You know, like the religion. Like, yeah, that's my name. Um, I'm currently a student at Regent University. I'm double majoring in biblical studies and communications. And yeah, I just have a passion for studying the scriptures, learning more about what the text has to say itself. Um, that's kind of what birthed this whole podcast was getting into the text, you know? So... Yep. So I'm Gabe. Um, I am also a Regent student. I'm studying communications with a minor in biblical studies with the hopes to go to a seminary, uh, maybe even do a postgrad degree, uh, hopefully in like Old Testament studies. I just realized as you were talking that I just kind of scuttered through SBTCS. I was like, I don't know if anyone knows what that means. Uh, so it's the, the Southern the Baptist, Southern Baptist Theological <laughs> Seminary, uh, work as a youth pastor and do various other things. So I'm um, excited to be here with these two gentlemen uh, yes, talking about uh, things that are very important to us. Um, kind of our motto for this podcast is um, Semper Reformanda, which is always reforming. We want to continually look back to the text of Scripture and um, proclaim what it says and love what it says mm -hmm. um, and let that that shape us. So, so our topic today um, is the, the growing divide in mainstream evangelicalism between what is taught in the Bible and what's taught on Sunday mornings. And so we've kind of titled this uh, this uh, particular episode, uh, Biblical Literacy and the Postmodern West. Um, and so we're talking about how biblical literacy is incredibly low among many Christians of the younger generation. Uh, Gabe, do you want to speak to that at all? Any observations just on that, that topic point? Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, done, we've been doing some research before this podcast, looking at different statistics and things like that. Um, and one of the things that we found uh, were that 57% of evangelicals, according to the Ligonier study, uh, the state of theology, uh, believe that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest creation or creature of God, hmm. but not God himself. Yeah, it feels like it was condemned a while back, <laughs> um, making a nice resurgence here. Um, but Always even, do. Yeah, but even worse, almost 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher but not God. So it's like kind of the distinction made even from the first one yeah. to say not even necessarily a heavenly being or like a created being, but, but merely a man, a moral teacher. Um, so I think what's interesting to me, I think the, the observation I made was that 90% of evangelicals believe that the Bible um, is infallible in all that it teaches. So from the same survey, Right. Like it said, 57 percent don't believe that Jesus is God himself, um, but 90 percent say that they believe what the Bible says is true. Yeah. So like, where's the, the disconnect then? Because um, I, I think the Bible clearly teaches um, the co-divinity um, of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. 
Um, so what what's going on then? Where where is is the disconnect? Yeah, it just makes you wonder, like what's being preached in the American church? Mm. You know, it makes you wonder, well, what are the pastors actually saying? Because if people are actually legitimately believing, and according to Ligonier, they are, that Jesus was just some regular man and not God, and that Jesus was just one of the first and one of the greatest creatures of God, there's no way that that preaching can be biblical. Right. And I think we just, you know, talked about this before we turned to Micah, you know, the idea that the error is not always what you say, but what you don't say, um, that the emphasis oftentimes can be off and you can arrive. Um, for example, you know, we were talking about how in uh, the Jehovah's Witness rendering of John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and he was a God. Um, so that they intentionally, um, under the, um, the guise of, you know, old Arianism, uh, arrive at this non-biblical rendering of the text. They twist the actual language of the text itself. Um, and it says here from the study, you know, 57% of evangelicals are arriving at the same conclusion while having the clear text of the Bible. Um, and so what that tells me is it's not necessarily about the fact that they don't have the Bible or they don't, um, you know, they don't have access to these things, but um, that there's a uh, an issue in biblical literacy, and I think that comes mainly from a lack of emphasis of doctrine in the church today. Yeah, I think also uh, just real quick. So, like we were talking about how like the like the preaching isn't always biblical, apparently, but I also think the church doesn't push their congregation enough to do their own personal study mm-hmm. right. either. It's kind of like just come to Sunday, uh, get your little feel good message, and then come back next Sunday. But there's right. no like push for your own devotion, devotional time, or even study time. Which I think can right. be very damaging. Well, study as well. is, is, in a sense, a bad word. Um, you know, it kind of the idea of kind of the antithesis to spiritual growth is being too heady. Mm. Which I hope that this podcast can show that that good theology, right theology, always leads us to right worship, and then right living, which is an extension of our worship, according to Romans twelve. Yeah think that the American church, even like the modern evangelical church globally, they're almost scared of this word theology. Right. Like somehow it's bad if we're in the scripture trying to figure out who God is, because then we're just turning it into a religion. And you know, the old saying, it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And so they were, we're scared to make it too heady. But at the same time, if we get into the text and if we pull out some theological meanings, then the church kind of cowers away from that because we're concerned, oh, well, we're now stepping away from the relationship. Right. And we're not, you know, in this lovey-dovey, feely right. kind of relationship with Jesus. It's now, oh, now you're getting technical and you're just being right. a Pharisee. And sometimes even the opposite effect, we're like, especially like within my group, the reform circles, where we're too scared for it not to be like heady enough. Right. And only emotions and only feelings that we go so far right. where it is just head knowledge. Yeah. So the goal is, is almost like a Puritan-esque um, way of looking at how our, our knowledge should lead us into a deep place of prayer and devotion. And that they're not against each other, but they're actually, they complement one each other. Um, you know, the truth of theology actually acts as those, I don't know if you guys are terrible at bowling. I am, I still need mm-hmm. my bumpers. It acts as a bumper for our devotional life and our devotional life is fueled by um, what we see in the scripture. 
Um, so let's talk about that, that specific error, um, that heresy um, that uh, has resurfaced, according to, to Ligonier, um, the 57% of young evangelicals who would say that Jesus is the first created being of God, but not God himself. Um, so let's just talk speaking biblically, which have a little like <laughs> sound effect when, when we say that. But the, I mean, I think the, the biblical authors go to great lengths um, to, to clearly and plainly address this topic. Um, so like specific examples, a very famous examples, John 1.1, 1, 1, Colossians 1.15-20, 1, Philippians 2.6-11. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to just take a second and just kind of address some of these um, these verses. And we can pull them up here. Yeah. We'll, we'll go to Logos. Hint, hint, sponsor us. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. I need you for my studies. <laughs> or Cordance, yeah. if you want to do Or Cordance, whatever, man. I don't yeah. Anyways, all right. Um, so let's look at it. John one one. I mean, we're just talking about the plain text of scripture in light of what we're seeing um, in the the kind of rejection of what what seems like very clear doctrine. The beginning of the Gospel of John. John one one. Right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. So it again. I I think of Colossians one. So. Looking at that that text, um, how the, the entire point that Paul's making here is to say uh, that Jesus not only is the the creator, the headship over all of creation, um, but he's also the head over all the church. The point of the of these these five crucial, beautiful verses is to say that Jesus is Lord and head and supreme over all. I mean, in the same way, uh, you guys can speak to Philippians two six. I mean, the very purpose. Philippians 2 6 mm-hmm. is to say, though Jesus is in the yeah. form, the morphe of God, um, he he lays down his what? His life. Right, like he lays yeah. down his life. It's this humility um expressed in the Godhead. Um, the Father uh glorifying the Son, the Son submitting himself to the Father. Um I think a lot of times in especially in the like reform circles, this idea of kenosis is like like frowned upon they're like oh that's just like the bill johnson doctrine or whatever and it's like hmm. well that's no, like a real biblical doctrine it's just used oftentimes to say that we can um, because god uh, i'm sorry because jesus um lived a, a perfect life in the flesh that we can also do the very things that jesus did um in perfect relationship to the father and that's not what this text is saying obviously it's saying that jesus and his divinity um, and humility laid down his life um for the sake of our salvation and to um, submit himself to the glory of the Father. And even looking at the specific book in Philippians, what's so cool about Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is that Paul, like literally in the middle of this book, breaks out into like a poem. Like this is classically called the Jesus poem. Mm-hmm. And he's describing who Christ is and what's so important about describing who Christ is, especially to the Philippian church, is because the believers in that church need to know how to be more like Christ Jesus. And what's so unfortunate when we lack biblical literacy is that we don't even understand why it's so important we understand who Jesus is in the first place. Because Paul's authorial intent behind this passage was for the people in the church at Philippi to understand who Christ was so they could be like Christ and to have the same mindset he had. Well, and then when... Like you were saying, like through this passage, you understand who Christ is. 
uh, when you m- miss who Christ is, you miss also like how you should be yourself as well. Uh, because when Jesus is ju- Jesus is just a man and no longer perfect, uh, perfect uh, person on our behalf and lived a perfect life on our behalf, then we can get to the point where we can say, oh yeah, we can live a perfect life and there is no need for right. Jesus. Uh, so I think that text is like super, super important. Right. And this is like, I think a lot of times, even like the divinity of Christ, I remember like being my first church history class, you know, learning about like the Council of Nicaea being like, okay, like what's like, I understand, I get it. Like, gee, like we have to defend the truth, but like this seems, a lot of this feels so nuanced. And gave you hit on the head, man, because like I think the thing is um, that if Jesus doesn't, he he's not only our sacrifice, but he's our new federal head. Uh, like he he lived a life on our behalf, and so why like why does Jesus have to be fully divine? And this is this is and the entire narrative of the Bible speaks to this. Um, it shows us that we need a better prophet, we need a better sacrifice, a better king. Like the whole narrative of the Old Testament is pointing to the insufficiency of all these human institutions um, and that we need God himself to come mediate, God himself to come reign, God himself to come rule. And so like, it's not just like a fleeting theological nuance that Jesus is the greatest creature or like whatever it might be. Like this is just one specific example, but it's very important to the whole of of the text. Like I'm reminded of Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Like even in the Old Testament, we're already seeing the divinity of Christ being established. And like you were saying, it fits in with the entire narrative of Scripture is that we need a Savior, that we need someone who is divine and that can save men from themselves. And then if you look in the Old Testament too, um, I think this is where especially systematic theology becomes really important. In the Old Testament, when you look at um, Israel, who's supposed to be their king? God. Right. And God was always supposed to rule over his kingdom. Again, in the New Testament, you remove the divinity of Christ. Now a human is ruling over Christ or uh, over God's kingdom again. Right. So it would only make sense looking at the Old Testament too and looking at the whole of scripture that God would then be over his kingdom. And Jesus said it was his kingdom. Yeah, so. that's First Samuel 8. I believe is, it speaks to that, you know, where, where the Lord speaks to Samuel and, it, you know, basically says like, this wasn't my will. Like there's almost a like judgment involved in it, like to see that, like what will become of God's people when they're ruled over by a mere mortal. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the reason behind like, what, so why is the doctrine of God or of the divinity of Christ, the person and work of Christ? Like, why is it so important? Um, and it's not just the Ligonier study either. I mean, like, I can speak to all of us when we say that, like, we've all experienced this personally, mm-hmm. hearing things that, um, you know, are off and, you know, kind of kind of caught and taught, not necessarily from stage, but just kind of um, kind of just from the YouTubes. Yeah. And, you know, like sometimes when I watch some of these preachers, you know, there are air quotes there, by the way. Uh, yeah, air quotes. What, what, yeah, that's right. I don't know right. what's coming after this, but there are air yeah, quotes. Yeah, there's air quotes to preacher. You can't see it, but behind the mic, there are air quotes. But it seems like they're more of a, like these people that attempt to like identify as Christian, but they're really just like giving a nice TED talk to a congregation every Sunday because there is no biblical basis for it. And since there's no biblical basis for what they're saying, they have nice quotes they have things that you can write down and remember for the week but when your congregation is walking away from your service thinking oh jesus was just another man Mm. 
There's a problem with that one. I think that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the purpose of a Christian sermon is for. I think <laughs> I think that might be at the core of this. Again, when we're talking about 57% of evangelicals believing uh, that Jesus is the first created being, we need to seriously use that as a check engine light um, and, and think about, well, really, what is the point then of what we're teaching? And my, uh, my thesis is that the point of a Christian sermon is worship. Mm-hmm. Like I, you, can, if you're not present, like this is the beauty of what Luther taught, you know, is that um, when Christ was preached, he was presented to the people. Uh, it's this idea that we're, our job is not to just speak to felt emotional needs or cultural norms or whatever, but it's to present Christ so that the people can worship him and grow. We have kind of below, we're going to hit on um, some, maybe some misunderstandings in ecclesiology. Um, and I think that, you know, that speaks to maybe episode three or four. Um, but I, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about like that being said, um, not only biblically, but historically, um, you know, we have an understanding of what Christians believe, what, what is meant to be taught, what's authoritative. Um, so why why is this happening why is it that in in a generation where the bible is freely accessible um there are there's a a huge lack in in biblical literacy so why why do you see that happening what's going on there i think what's what's breathtaking honestly is that these heresies were addressed within the first 300 centuries after christ came to earth like the these these heresies were pointedly um, taken care of yet it seems like the modern church has thrown history like their church history the very foundations from where they began almost out of the window and you know we see in the council of nicaea in 325 um arianism was what they were debating and arianism essentially is the idea that um that somehow jesus was just had this divinity about him but there was no way that he could be part mm. of the godhead like right. he he was of a different substance like he was divine he was anything but like with god like you know we just read in the right, passages right. you know in the text and this was confronted specifically in the council of nicaea and it changed church doctrine and why we believe what we believe right yet we're kind of sacrificing this knowledge and the understanding of the texts. So that way we can have a cool worship service or a cool experience at church rather than understanding the Bible more. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's honestly, like I've said, scary that the church no longer seems to care about what the Bible says. They care more about, what they feel when they mm. go to church or what the experience is like or how good was the music or did I get coffee before I came? Mm. Like there is no direct correlation that people even seem to care. I mean, you've seen the uh, the John Christ, you know, church shopping video. And mm. the, the reason why it's funny is because it is true. Mm. Um, and and so, you know, one of the points I, I put down was like the postmodern drift. And so we're, when we, we use this, you know, fun philosophical you know post-modernity word we're talking about the movement the 19th and 20th centuries away from uh objective truth any meta-narrative claims things like that and we don't realize how much uh, it's it's affected our western religion our western christianity 
uh, has become largely pragmatic and emotionally driven. So it, it's kind of to say like what works, what is helpful. Um, and, and so the problem with that <laughs> is that when you, when you ask that, you know, you're assuming it, that it's not um, already contained in the Bible. And so I'll kind of give you kind of my observation with that. Um, for example, you hear a lot today in progressive Christianity, kind of like, well, that's your interpretation. Um, I, I hope to speak to this because I think this is so important. Um, the Bible is really very clear and, and very plain, especially, uh, so that's not to say there's not some things in the Bible that are um, hard to understand or maybe um, can be like, we need context. Um, but but for the most part, on things of doctrine and practice in the New Testament, especially, uh, the Bible is very plain and clear. Um, and so the issue is uh, what we're, we're saying when we're saying, well, that's your interpretation. We're not actually saying that um, there are two interpretations of a text. There's there's one. There's what the author meant. And we're striving to understand that better. And we come to different variations of it. Um, but we're all trying to understand what the author meant. Um, and if we don't understand that, what we're saying is, well, that really, that's your truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that is kind of the language, the Trojan horse of language that has kind of kind of got into the church to say, well, there's just all these different interpretations. And so yours may be right. Mine's probably more right. And like, and so this is the Trojan horse by which we can kind of believe whatever we want about the text uh, while kind of not necessarily acknowledging that there is a plain and clear uh, meaning um, that we can come through through biblical interpretation. Yeah, I think the whole concept that we have now too in the modern evangelical church is um, just me and my Bible. Yes. Just good. me and my Bible yeah. can can do everything together. And it's like, right. if you look at church history, because I think Christian was sitting on church history and an unhitching of church history, you don't see that anywhere. It's always, um, there's always fellowship in a community of believers and, a, and, and teachers within the church teaching the people how to properly interpret. That's so good. Because um, radical individualism goes right alongside post-modernity. Yeah. Like, PB and J, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. Yeah. Um, it's like a perfect fit. Um, so I definitely, I see that. And I see the, um, the results of that is, you know, the, even the, the New Testament instructs us to like, to pay pastors, to pay your, the people who teach you the Bible. Um, you know, and there's this idea that there's accountability um, in the church and there's you're doing this in community you're not um, not that you don't have the the right or the ability to th interpret the bible on your own but that we submit to what's authoritative um, which for us obviously is the scripture and to the orthodox tradition of, of church history um, and so I, I think on a second side and i, I want to kind of see what you guys think the, the way in of this um, the downplaying of theology in the, in the pulpit I think as a part of that, because um, I, I grew up and I, you know, as I was kind of going into Bible college, would uh, talk with different pastors and they tell me, you know, we're not just, we're just not really a theology church. Uh, <laughs> so the problem with this, though, is that if you're not a theology church, if you're not doing theology with your people, then the world will. I think R.C. Sproul said it best, is that everyone is a theologian, whether they want to admit it or not. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're always going to have a thought about God or the concept of God. And whenever it's just you and your Bible or whenever you go to your church that doesn't do theology, you're still doing good theology by right. default because what is theology? It is the study of God. 
or whatever concept you're construing of him. It doesn't have to be the right God. It doesn't have to be the true God. It's just a study of oh, God. God. Right. And so even if your study of God is completely misinformed, and if you're not reading the text, and if you don't have biblical, biblical literacy, if you don't understand church history, then you're still going to be practicing theology regardless. Right. You're just going to have a wrong theology. Right. Yeah, I think too, like if a pastor or anybody like that came up to me and said, um, I probably wouldn't say this up front to them, but I would think it in my head, like if they oh, here's said, here's hot take number one, here we go, <laughs> just tell they, what it is. <laughs> if, they, if they said to me, we're, we're not a theology church, I would say, okay, then you don't preach the Bible. Because as soon as you start preaching the Bible, your theology will come up. Right. So you can't say we are, we're a Bible believing church and a Bible teaching church, but we don't do theology. Yeah. They're like PB&J, like you said. You can't, together. you can't, yeah, you can't separate out, um, you know, preaching from an expository standpoint and doing theology well from like kind of this sentiment. I mean, they're, they're antithetical to say, um, I don't do theology and say, like, well, you're right. Yeah. Then like, then what could you possibly be getting from the Bible then? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Bible by nature is historical and theological literature. It's not a self-help book. Like a lot of pastors. Right. And so, but I think the issue is what's going on. Uh, is that we kind of believe uh, subconsciously that if we maybe if we don't do theology or if we kind of juvenilize the gospel, um, then maybe people will be one to Christ. Uh, and I, I think we'll, we'll touch on this in like you know later uh, episodes. But uh, I think this reveals two main issues, and I think these are these are really prevalent today. We have a misunderstanding of ecclesiology, the study of the church. And we have a misunderstanding of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Um, so the idea that somebody will come to Christ because I make uh, it more palatable or I, I water mm -hmm. it down or uh, even the idea that, again, I think the sentiment of like, I don't want to be too theological about it. Well, again, no one's asking you to use, you know, doctoral level language. Um, but like even I think the mindset produces bad fruit because it is to say that, um, you know, if I if I make the gospel a little bit more sexy or a little bit more watered down, um, then people will come to Christ, which is to completely and totally not understand the supernatural, incredible, beautiful power of regeneration um, and how people come to Christ in the Holy Spirit, making them alive, giving them life, um, not by anything that the preacher does, but when Christ is clearly proclaimed. Um, and so it's it's not a matter of if I have a better method, but it's just knowing that um, when somebody comes to Christ, it is because God first and primarily did something. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of what's scary, too, is that people will say, well, I saved this person or I led this person to Christ. You did not save that individual from eternal damnation <laughs> like that. That's not again. That's a lack of biblical literacy. Right. There's no way you can save somebody. You do you do not have the power to do that. Only God does. You a sinner. I would, go, sinner. I, I would go out on a limb and say, well, you couldn't even do that for yourself. Exactly. How, you? How could you do it for so, someone else? Again, so saying that I should dress up the church so that more people will get saved is like saying, I'm going to turn on the stove and hope the light turns on above me. Yeah. It doesn't make sense because by nature, salvation is an act of God. And that's, I think that's, that's the primary point of our misunderstanding in soteriology and our misunderstanding in ecclesiology is that by nature, these are the gathered people of God, not just a, uh, a building or a gathering of people trying to look cool and sexy so that people will come and know this Jesus guy. Yeah, I think too, 
I think uh, I love what you were getting at, but also like in scripture, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Right. Um, so if you're not teaching the word of God or teaching theology, you know, if you want to water down the gospel and, and preach self-help, then they're not, they're not going to be saved. Now they can be because God works in not supernatural ways, but right. faith does come by hearing the word of God. Right. And I think that I, I hear this quote probably more than any other among some of these circles, which is that uh, kind of the Francis of Assisi quote, um, <laughs> you know, preach the gospel and if, and if necessary, use words. And like, I, I, okay, here's my one hot take of the, like, I, I don't know if there's a, uh, a sillier way to say what you're trying to say. Like, it just, it's incoherent because preaching by nature implies giving a message, first of all. Um, and that's not to say that the gospel is devoid of our good works. It is. It proves the point that the gospel is powerful and it changed a sinner like me. Um, but that if anybody comes to Christ, it is because they heard of the word of Christ. Um, and it's produced, like faith is produced by, like what you said, hearing the word about Christ and hearing it just the raw, simple word of Christ as scripture proclaims. Yeah, I mean, you look in Acts. Uh, Paul went out and Peter went out and they preached the gospel, not trying to dress it up sexy and 3000 ratted up to them. Right. And and a key verse in that acts two forty seven. Yeah. I teach you on this this week is, uh, uh, and the Lord added to their number daily. So like, so what happened there? Why did the 3000 become the church? Because the Lord added to their number Wait, they didn't have a fog machine? There's no there fog was no machine? fog machine. Ah, no lights. No lights. No. Uh, whatever the Babylon Bee might say, there was no lights, <laughs> no fog machine. And they didn't lead anybody to God. Right. And so th- what? The, and Luke is like, he is very careful with his words to say in two places. Like, um, you know, in Acts, you know, he says this in Acts 2.47. He says this also in Acts 13, similar situation, the open preaching the gospel and some rejecting it, some coming. He says, like, God did this. God added to the number. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's also a part of the idea is that um, we need to understand that our our preaching of the gospel um, is a call. Mm -hmm. This is a different episode. But to say that that we in ourselves have the ability to make the gospel more palatable and then somebody might be saved um, is, is to not understand the ministry of preaching. But we'll get into that. In episodes more, you guys will be on this journey with us as we approach all these topics. Um, but yeah, Christian, what's up? Yeah, I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn in my hot take. You okay. both got hot takes. Hot takes. Here we go. I'm gonna take my hot take. All right, this is my hot take. I think another thing that gets me really upset when I hear now here's where we're going. This yeah, is, this is this, just letting off steam. Yeah, this, this is this is this is where he's going. <laughs> but when a pastor gets up and says, "In my ministry or my ministry, we do this." Number one, if you claim to be a preacher of the gospel, it was never your ministry to begin with. You're a co-partner with Jesus Christ who has filled you with the Holy Spirit and you're continuing his ministry in the world. And that's what do you see in the beginning of Acts. Right, exactly. You know, that the the gospel was the continuation of Christ's work and he just so happened to use, you know, Peter, James and John and the other apostles to spread that work all throughout the known world at that time. Right. So and that not at one point they say, this is my ministry or this is something I'm doing. No, they were led by the teachings right. of Jesus Christ. And so was the church who followed the apostles doctrine, who were following the sound biblical teachings of 
Jesus. Yeah. So because I'm reformed, I'm going to correct you on your language. Oh, God. Um, oh, no. I would go as far as to say oh, not no. even co-partners in the ministry, but an under-shepherd. So it's not like you're equal with, okay. with Christ. You're you're under him. Well, I, I think, of course, Christian obviously would affirm that. Yeah, I just had to correct his language. Okay. Well, well I mean, I think, that's, I think the same idea is still coming. Well, so, no, okay, good. so first, first Peter, obviously affirming what Gabe said, the idea of the, the, yeah. the poimen, the shepherd, and the archipoimen, yeah. the great shepherd. So I understand what you're saying. <laughs> that you've used all three, man. We, we Before we started this episode, I said, you guys get three hot takes per 30 minutes. And uh, I think I'm the only one who... Have I had? A, I don't know if I've you had, had a hot take. You had, had hot one take. hot take. You had one, one hot, hot take. take. I had one hot take. I had like one and a half. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. There we go. So, I think again. So we're talking right now. We've kind of this portion of of our talk has been on the, the fact that not only ecclesiology, so the study of the church and of ministry, um, but soteriology. I touched on that, that that salvation by nature is an act of God, and so when it happens, it's not because somebody. Um, dressed Christ up and they were like, oh, okay, I'll do that. But they had a supernatural rebirth where God powerfully converted them from darkness to light, blind to seeing. Um, and so that our idea that we can, uh, if, if only not being theological or if only not offending people or if only not watering the gospel down, then people will come to Christ is to negate the fact that God is the one who adds people to Christ regardless yeah <laughs> um and he does so through the preaching of the word and so our job is not to try to save people and to win people but to be faithful to the gospel um and so i i think like christian what you said like the idea of ecclesiology it's not our ministry it's the ministry of christ um we understand that um i think these are all basic and some some presuppositions that are going to carry us through through these episodes i wanted to touch real quick though we've kind of touched on the why I want to just give our listeners kind of an idea of what we're really seeing when people kind of add their meaning to the text. And so we're going to just have, like, kind of close this episode with like, okay, so we've, we've gave this example from Ligonier of the 57% of, of young evangelicals who uh, do not believe that, that Christ is co-equal with God, but he's a uh, created being. Um, we have talked a little bit about the why we've talked about some, some verses that are crucial to combating that as an example of how to do, um, biblical theology. So let's talk about some of those, those, um, tools we used while we were talking about this. We were talking about John 1, we were talking about Colossians 1, we were talking about Philippians 2. Um, kind of this idea of what is exegesis, what is eisegesis, how to recognize them in the pulpit. Um, Christian, go ahead on that. I think when we are practicing exegesis or when we're trying to see what the text is actually saying for itself, what's key is not bringing our own presuppositions to the text or what we think about what the text says, or, mm. you know, take Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, right, and, right, right. for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, which is true. That sentence is true, but it's terribly taken out of context. Right. Um, and I think that's the, we see, like Gabe was saying earlier, we see the Bible as this kind of self-help book, mm. which just is chuck full of, you know, little lines and things that we can springboard an entire Christian TED talk off of. Right. But we're not actually getting into the meat of scripture because we're not looking at the text and how it fits into like the entire context of the rest of the scripture. And you're not going to understand that text if you don't understand what the rest of the book is saying, and if you don't understand what the entire biblical narrative is, 
But if you just like open a passage of scripture and you say, oh, well, that's a good line. Yeah. And then you preach a sermon about it. You're not preaching the word of God as it was intended to be preached. Right. You're preaching the word of God from a very eisegetical point of view, which is interpreting yourself into the text and where you see that the text is just something that you can use for your own benefit. Right. And so you see this in like, again, we talked a little bit about contextual readings or uh, contextual interpretations, which is kind of this way of thinking among modern biblical scholarship that says like, um, it's kind of a divergence from kind of the thoughts of the reformers that said there is a plain, clear meaning to scripture. And through doing the work to get there through the Greek, through the context, we can understand it. We can know what the apostles meant and what's authoritative. There's kind of this understanding that, well, uh, I have a different socioeconomic background or a different um, kind of cultural background, whatever it might be. Um, and therefore, that informs my reading of the text. Uh, and so what that does, or on top of that, there's two kind of forks in the road on there. It's... Um, I'm going to bring what I assume about God or what I want this text to say, kind of my idea. And I'm going to kind of um, kind of find in the Bible what fits um, what I'm trying to say, which is kind of the idea of being uh, inductive. I'm sorry, deductive rather than inductive. Um, and so when we talk about exegesis, uh, expository preaching, um, inductive Bible study, um, we're talking about this idea of going to the text, trying to be as unbiased as possible. Now, we all have biases, but we're trying to not let those necessarily inform what the text is saying. And we're trying to go to the text. We're trying to read it for what the author meant and then synthesize that with the story and the other t clear teachings of the Bible. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to Biblically Speaking. Uh, hey, go follow our Instagram page at biblicallyspeaking.pc for more updates, new episodes, and exclusive content from myself, from Gabe, from Christian. Uh, so thanks so much. We'll see you next week.